Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do please leave us a five-star review. This week, we're going to take a look at the takeover of American capitalism in recent years by progressive, woke ideology. Companies from Apple to Disney, Coca-Cola, and others commit themselves now to many of the nostrums of the modern left on issues such as racial equity, gender and identity politics, climate change. Is there a backlash brewing? The ESG craze, the idea that companies should be judged not simply by their financial returns to shareholders, but on their performance on progressive standards in the field of environment, social, governance matters. Has that ESG craze now gone too far? With the economy facing tough headwinds, could there be a return to simply pursuing the time-honored objective of all successful companies, profitability? To discuss this today, I'm joined by Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is an entrepreneur, commentator, and author, and I think it's fair to say one of the most fearsome scourges of so much of our modern woke ideology. He founded biological sciences firm Royvent Sciences and went on to create a number of other new businesses. Most recently, he co-founded Strive Asset Management. That's a firm that invests with the goal of getting companies to back away from controversial social or environmental issues and simply focus on making money. He's the author of Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, which was published last year. And his latest book is Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and the path back to excellence. Vivek Ramaswamy joins me now. Thanks very much for being here. Good to be on, Jerry. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Congratulations on the new firm and the new book. I want to talk, first of all, about corporate wokeness or what's happened to so many American companies. We've seen it over the last few years. I think it really kind of accelerated after the Black Lives Matter movement and what we saw two years ago. But companies are positioning themselves in certainly in their promotional material, but also in practice in terms of many of their hiring practices and their promotion practices and the way in which they sell their products and who they're trying to sell their products and services to emphasizing the sort of ideological nostrums that I talked about, racial equity and social justice and you know environmental concerns. Again, as I said, you've been one of the foremost scourges for critics of this process. Do you think we are seeing now maybe that that has passed its high tide, that we are seeing a bit of a pushback now against this woke capitalism? I do think so. I think we've passed sort of the point of peak woke and even peak ESG in capital markets. And I say that with some optimism. I think that moving past that peak was not the end in itself. I think the end in itself is reviving the essence of both American capitalism and American democracy. You know, and I'm not personally taking any credit for this or whatever, but I think a lot of the discourse from the books that have been written to new market participants that have gotten in on bringing competition to the marketplace, to the shifting attitudes in many of the states that did not know what was happening with their constituents' money, who have now woken up to that fact, I think the confluence of those factors has definitely combined with the events of this year, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the resulting energy crisis around the world, 
with all fingers pointing to the ESG movement as having planted the seeds for the energy shortages that we see around the world. I just think there's a confluence of factors there that move us to this post-ESG conversation that we're in now. And the question is, how do we learn or not learn from the last couple of years to make sure that whatever edifice is built to replace the old edifice does not remake some of the same mistakes? And I think that's where I'm most focused today. I think at the end of the day, we lived in this apologist model of American capitalism following the 08 financial crisis. I think that was the last seismic event that resulted in the birth of stakeholder capitalism and ESG and capital markets, where large financial institutions felt under pressure to apologize for capitalism itself and instead created this new mode of capitalism that allowed them to advance progressive agendas as a way of deflecting Occupy Wall Street and the progressive attack on American capitalism. I think that flame has mostly since burned out. took about a decade and a half to do it, but that flame has now mostly burned out. As I think now we have begun to see this year in 2022, some of the, if you will, to borrow their own language, the negative externalities of the ESG movement itself, which was supposedly a movement about containing negative externalities. It's created a wide range of new negative externalities of its own ranging from political and social division to a worldwide energy crisis, I think that's created new fertile ground for the question of where American capitalism, where Western capitalism more broadly goes from here. And uh, you know, I'm trying to do my part in shaping that for the better. As you say, I think this really did explode after the global financial crisis. But if you like the kind of the idea that companies, the argument that companies should do more than simply pursue profit for their shareholders, it's been around a very famous debate you know it's gone back over decades really and of course there's a very famous debate to which milton friedman perhaps most famously contributed in the pages of the wall street journal actually i think about 50 years ago with this famous article that said companies should simply focus on shareholder value but again ever since then at that time and since then you have seen this pressure i mean i suppose the argument that people when they push back against that and the idea that companies do have a wider obligation is that you can do well by doing good there's no conflict between being a profit maximizing business and being socially and environmentally conscious and doing good things in the broader community. Companies have always done that to some extent, haven't they? Where does it get pushed too far then? I mean, how far has it gone to the point where it's being demanded of companies that they pursue interests other than simply shareholder value? Well, look, I think it's important to draw a distinction here between the two cases for stakeholder capitalism or ESG-informed corporate behavior and investing. What's happened in the last couple of years, Jerry, is that these following two arguments have become conflated and commingled with one another, muddying the debate. I think the first debate, you're right, this has been around for 50 years, and you're right, since Milton Friedman and Klaus Schwab, both in the 1970s, were at it, dating back to four or five decades ago, although I personally do believe the Wall Street Journal editorial page is the single best place to publish opinion journalism. Actually, he ended up, at least more recently it is, at the time he actually published on the pages of the New York Times Magazine. That was where Friedman's famous essay ran. Nonetheless, I think that the, the debate that was had then was, it was a really interesting one, where society had conferred all kinds of benefits on corporations that did not exist in the state of nature. So Milton Friedman wrote that article and the backlash that he got was that he ignored, and I think they're mostly correct about this. I think Milton Friedman did ignore the artificial legal benefits that society bestowed upon corporate shareholders, like limited liability is one of them, right? Limited liability basically says that a shareholder of a corporation does not bear any of the downside risks or liabilities of that business while still economically participating in all of the upside. And the argument to the Milton Friedmans of the world at the time was that, well, you know what? In your Friedmanite state of nature, limited liability doesn't exist. That's something that society 
gave you as a great gift, you corporate shareholders. And so you owe an implicit debt in return, an implicit bargain to also look after societal interests, even if that means at the time marginally trading off your profit interests. That's the grand bargain. I think it's an intellectually coherent view. It's an intellectually interesting view. I think it is mostly what Larry Fink means when he consistently said things until recent years, until he had said things like, businesses have to earn their social license to operate every day. That's it's a quote directly from Larry Fink. He's stopped saying it more recently, and I'll tell you why, but that was the original argument. And I think it's an interesting argument. It's intellectually coherent. It's not one that I agree with. So in Woke Inc., I actually trace a different legal and intellectual history that says that there was a grand bargain. And by the way, this was Milton Friedman's unfinished work, as far as I'm concerned, because he never responded to this criticism. And I think it's a really important criticism. What I found was that actually there was a grand bargain, but the grand bargain wasn't an unspoken one. It was an explicit grand bargain, where what society, America in particular, actually, America was was a leader in this. America in particular said is that in return for these great benefits like limited liability, we have a demand of you, corporation. It is that you stay in your lane, that you do not exercise the undue power that comes from these great gifts like limited liability to also tilt the scales of political discourse or of our body politic. That was the grand bargain. We will make Frankenstein's monster if Frankenstein's monster stays in his cage, namely the market. And so anyway, this is stuff from Woke Inc. And so after I published that legal history in Woke Inc., I expected a response and sort of maybe somebody else would come up with a better argument that I hadn't thought of. And and so the debate goes. Instead, something interesting happened in the last 24 months, really, 18 months of this, Jerry, in particular, is that the folks on the other side said in response to that argument, what they basically said was, actually, just kidding. (laughs) We didn't really mean what we said. This wasn't about businesses having to earn their social license to operate. No, this is just about maximizing long-run shareholder value. So you see, we're not really saying anything different. We're just saying this is capitalism. And so if you look more recently at Larry Fink's annual letter to America's CEOs, he doesn't say they have to earn their social license to operate. He says that this is just capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism is just capitalism, is what he more recently said. And I think that's what their lawyers advised them to do, because it turns out that fiduciary law in the United States says that you have to invest with the sole purpose, or as a corporate director, make decisions with the sole end, not a mixed motivation, but a sole end of maximizing shareholder value. And so that's why that debate got tortured. And Jared, cut me off if I'm going too long here on on a diatribe, but if I may close the loop on that, I think it's a very difficult argument to pierce through. The claim that, you know what? These companies are acting in the long run financial interests because this is what the world is going to do in 2050. You don't want to go the way of the dodo. This is what Larry Fink and others say. Well, the way I pierce through it is let's look at actual specific examples. I'll give you two examples of shareholder letters I wrote in recent months, right, to the board of Chevron and to the board of Apple. And something interesting happened in both those cases where the proponents of a proposal, so it's a scope three emissions reduction proposal at Chevron and a racial equity audit proposal at Apple. The interesting feature is in both cases, the proponents of the proposal, if you look at their logic, in Chevron's case, it was about fighting climate change. In Apple's case, it was about holding companies accountable for their role in perpetuating white supremacy. Noble as those goals may be, and we can debate that, those stated goals have nothing to do with advancing shareholder value. And in both cases, the boards of those companies initially, and the key word is initially here, Jerry, initially said that they opposed the proposals, both those parties, though they disagreed on whether to adopt the proposal, agreed on one thing, is that these proposals had nothing to do with advancing shareholder value. But then waddling into that debate came BlackRock and State Street, and in Chevron's case, Vanguard as well, who voted in favor of the proposals nonetheless, giving them majority shareholder support, which then caused the boards to revisit and change their positions. 
so I think that it takes some intellectual work, but when you poke through the argument, you realize that it's really the first argument all along. The argument that uh, businesses earning their social license and that they've disguised in the veneer of these arguments about long-termism. And I just think it's important that we fall not into the trap of conflating the two. That's interesting. So they've actually explicitly, essentially rescinded their own line. If you say in those responses, by voting for those measures at those companies, they've pulled back from the whole idea of this sort of stakeholder investing is in long-term interest of shareholder value. It's very explicit, is it, that they actually don't believe that? So I want to be very particular here because I think this is, so, so, the, so the proponents of the proposal Okay, so I'll get very specific. In the Chevron case, the party that put up the scope three emissions reduction plan, and by the way, scope three emissions reduction makes absolutely zero business logic sense for an oil company. It basically requires them to have their customers buy less of their own product. It'd be like McDonald's voluntarily committing to reduce the body weight of anyone who's eaten a Big Mac without asking the consumer to share any responsibility. That's what a scope three proposal effectively is for an oil company. The party who put that proposal up was a Dutch nonprofit founded by a former refrigerator salesman who wanted to fight climate change, as is his right, and I respect people who follow their passions, so so be it that that's what this man in the Netherlands wanted to do. That nonprofit put up a shareholder proposal whose stated objective was to fight climate change. The board of Chevron, presumably because they thought this proposal did not advance shareholder interests, first asked the SEC not to even allow it on the ballot, and then when the SEC, with the SEC we have, but the SEC denied that proposal, then they recommended against shareholders voting for it. They recommended that shareholders vote against the proposal. So if you flash freeze it right there, the intentions are clear. What's at issue is a social issue that the company needs to address. The Dutch nonprofit founded by the refrigerator salesman says that they should address the social issue and Chevron's board said they should not. But then waddling into that debate are BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard who nonetheless voted in favor of it. And in voting in favor of it, this is in 2021. By then, they'd already been coached by their lawyers, right? And so by 2021, the thing they're saying is, no, 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 this is about long-run financial interests. So that's what the asset managers who are voting for it are saying, even though the position of both the proponent, the original author of the proposal, and the board was that it did not advance shareholder interests. And any logical human being, I think, can take a look at a scope three proposal and find, I would say, a vacuum of arguments for how that could possibly advance the best interests of Chevron. Not the best interests of society. There's a debate to be had there. But in the best interest of Chevron, I think there's, there's almost no argument to be made. And indeed, the proponent and the board initially agreed on as much. So it's the asset managers that have purposefully conflated the two because the law requires them to. The law requires them to say that this is about long-run financial value when, in fact, that is not the actual motivating force. But yeah, they sort of dress it up in that way. Do you think that a company, that one of the other arguments that's made by the likes of BlackRock and others, but also by the Business Roundtable, which a couple of years ago came out with a kind of statement of objectives for big American companies, is that obviously shareholders, uh, if you like, the sort of, you know, the primary stakeholders, but there are all kinds of other stakeholders in companies and companies have to, as a matter of a fiduciary responsibility, they have the responsibility to their employees, they have responsibility to their customers. And it's their employees, particularly, and sometimes their customers, who are particularly pushing for some of these aspects of the woke agenda, playing devil's advocate for a moment. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with the company actually, in it, in it, while it pursues shareholder value, yes, but also balancing that by recognizing that it has other responsibilities and other interests? There's nothing wrong with that in principle, actually. And that goes to the same question about advancing long-run financial interests. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't need new terms. We don't need new rubrics because old-school capitalism designs a system that takes care of that perfectly well. <laughs> that if this is actually in the best interests of a company, a company exists to serve its customers, company should give its customers what they want. Now, this is me wearing the hat of talking about um, fiduciary duties as it relates to capital markets. I have a different hat as a citizen. 
than I can wear, which we can get to in a second, which have a totally different view on what's actually driving some of that consumer behavior. But if it's true that a company's consumers want a given product, service, or message, and a company maximizes its own interests by serving that consumer with a product, service, and message, great, that's just capitalism. Now, what you actually find, though, is that in the name of servicing those customers, the company is actually not service doing the best job it possibly could of servicing all of its customers. So in most of these cases, there's a difference between the customers or employees who are most vocal on a given issue versus the actual diversity of perspectives represented in a customer base or an employee base. Disney is a great example of this, right? Disney, in the name of servicing its vocal employees, said that this is what our employees are demanding, the CEO says. Well, it turns out that actually Disney's employee base is about as diverse as its customer base, and 60% of its customers in a well-conducted survey found that they disagreed with the position that Disney took, even though they weren't the most vocal ones. And so I think that not all the time, but most of the time, this argument actually ends up being a farce, where the people who speak up most on Twitter are not actually representative of the broader either employee base or customer base of a company. But if you ask me the question of what's wrong with a company actually taking into account the interests of its customer base, perfectly fine to take into account the interests of its customer base and serving its customers. But I think that it's often, again, another one of these smoke screens that proves to be a farce in explaining a very different minority agenda. And it's not just a tyranny of the majority here that we worry about, but a tyranny of the minority that actually drags the rest of the majority along for the ride. And Jerry, this is a really important point in the asset management industry. That's effectively what's happening in the asset management industry. When BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street say, this is what our clients are demanding, there's a sense in which they're not wrong, right? It's CalPERS and the state of New York and other pension funds in Western Europe or otherwise are saying that we're not going to become your clients if you don't advance these social or environmental agendas. There's truth to that. But the problem is everyone else from West Virginia to Texas to Indiana to Missouri and everyone else gets dragged along for the ride despite the fact that that's not the ride they actually signed up to be on. And so both in the asset management industry, which is upstream of much of the economy, as well as in consumer products companies and the boardrooms of the actual publicly traded companies themselves, this is the dynamic that you see was this imbalance in that voice. Now, I think that there's the separate cultural question for you and I to reflect on, which we can, that's a separate conversation as citizens about what's going on in our culture, that this is exactly what even that minority of consumers, what's going on in our cultural conditions that cause that customer base to eat up this victimhood narrative that they're sold by so many of these companies. That's actually what my second book was all about, right? Woke Inc. was about the top-down effect. There's a bottom-up problem too, which is a whole separate cultural issue that has nothing to do with business that we ought to talk about. I want to come on and talk about that just in a second. But one of the other things I think that really kind of gets up the noses of people like us who are critical of the sort of woke ideology and these corporations following it is the inconsistency and the, the hypocrisy. And, you know, one perfect example that everybody refers to, you know, is take China, for example. So companies will justify investing in companies that are essentially run by the Chinese Communist Party, which, by the way, is the same Chinese Communist Party that is torturing and persecuting and maybe even committing genocide against the Uyghurs in China and denying its own people basic human rights. They'll justify investing in those companies by saying, well, actually, you know, these are very important. These are very profitable, very successful. So they produce great returns for our companies. So it's directly contradictory. They talk about how terrible racial inequity is in this country and how companies need to dedicate themselves to eliminating it while actually happily investing in, without a pipsqueak of criticism, organizations that actually are on a daily basis committing much greater acts of racial oppression than anything goes on here. Yeah, I mean, if you take the BDS movement as applies to Israel, for example, I mean, this is laughable that companies should boycott, divest, 
or sanction Israel without saying a peep about the places where actual human rights atrocities are happening, most notably in the Xinjiang province of China or elsewhere, right? So I think that this hypocrisy is best explained by a combination of conflicts of interest, cultural conflicts of interest in the proponents of these proposals. I mean, you take the Ilhan Omars of the world, they'd be great proponents of the BDS agenda, the anti-Israel agenda, without saying a peep about the rest of the Middle East, where there's actual human rights atrocities that we ignore. But I think that the financial conflicts of interest are the ones that are most easily addressed, I think, actually, which if you take a firm like Invesco or BlackRock or whoever, the dynamic is if the CCP asks you to jump, you ask how high. And the reason why is that they build a great Chinese wall that prevents you from entering the Chinese market if you criticize the CCP. But quietly, they roll out the red carpet if you simultaneously criticize the United States. And there's a reason for that. This is part of a long-run, long-range Chinese plan. It's not a conspiracy theory. This is just hiding in plain sight. You can listen to what Xi Jinping says on a given day, if you to believe his translator. What he basically says is that when he's pressed on the Uyghur human rights crisis, often he says that Black Lives Matter shows the United States is no better. Their top diplomat comes to the Alaska summit a year and a half ago, lectures Tony Blinken for 15 minutes in his opening statement about how China wants to see the U.S. stop slaughtering Black Americans, that's his word, slaughtering, and do better on human rights, which would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that we now have a new class of the international arbiters of moral justice, American headquartered multinational companies that repeatedly critique microaggressions here in the United States without saying a peep about the actual macroaggressions abroad in places like China. And so in a certain sense, they've understood that the gift of global capitalism was the Trojan horse we could not resist. I'm using the Greece-Troy analogy here intentionally to realize that you know Greece couldn't have defeated Troy militarily. They burned Troy from within. And I think that in some ways, China has recognized that our own companies and our own affinity for what we think is global capitalism, if it's mercantilist strings pulling it on the other side, are actually able to use those same companies to create a false moral equivalence between the US and China that ultimately erodes our greatest geopolitical asset of all, which is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And I think that that's the quiet part of what this ESG-linked, DEI-linked, three-letter acronymized version of capitalism does is it weakens the West, weakens the United States without applying its constraints, mandates, and criticisms to perhaps our greatest geopolitical foe over the course of the next you know, 20 years. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Vivek Ramaswamy, and we'll talk about the way in which America has become a nation of victims. Stay with us. The Claude Three model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back. I'm with author, commentator, entrepreneur, and investor Vivek Ramaswamy. We're talking about woke capitalism and how America became a nation of victims. Do you want to move on to your book about victim culture? One final quick question on this ESG thing. This is where, you know, I also give you an opportunity to talk about Strive. Is the backlash, if you like, or the pushback that's occurring against some of this, and we're seeing it now, by the way, reflected in some of the statements that people like Larry Fink at BlackRock are now coming out with, is part of the pushback 
that it's been financially very disappointing. The argument from many, many years, again, from the Larry Finks and from the Klaus Schwabs, and was that there was no conflict here. There was no tension between doing good and doing well. You could invest in environmentally friendly companies that committed to environmental objectives and companies that promoted racial equity and justice and all that kind of stuff, and you'd still get great returns, just as good returns as you would otherwise. I think the jury is now in pretty decisively and has shown that that isn't true, isn't it? Is that not right? I think over a 10-year period, we've seen now those returns in ESG returns have tended to be quite significantly lower than the general market. I think in this year, 2022, contributed a lot to that, Jerry. But I'm actually, despite being a critic or whatnot, I'm a big fan of intellectual honesty. And I think that most of these analyses involve cherry-picked data from both sides. It makes me cringe when I watch the Al Gores or even the Black Rocks of the world piece together, or even ESG analysts piece together empirical data, I use data in heavy air quotes here, that prove that ESG outperforms. I mean, this is cringeworthy stuff, but you've seen plenty of it perpetuated over the last five years. Interestingly, if anyone was making the kinds of claims they were making, and it weren't about ESG, but it were about pretty much any aspect of predicting future performance, you'd imagine that regulators like the SEC that go after much less with a lot more would have had a problem with it. But nonetheless, we are where we are. I want to be careful not to do the same in the other direction, right? 2022 was a year where energy stocks soared. I think a lot of oil and gas companies, coal companies, et cetera, have outperformed the market. There are a lot of factors contributing to that. And so I believe in sort of intellectual rigor and doing any empirical analysis. I think you're probably right, but that's not really even where I hang my hat here on the argument, is not in the empirics of how ESG funds have performed relative to non-ESG funds. I think there's basically two kinds of ESG investing, and one is far more problematic than the other. I mean, the one kind of ESG investing is you divest from stocks or sectors that do not necessarily align with your so-called social, environmental, or governance agendas. That's sort of stock selection, divestment-driven style ESG. In capital markets, that's a small portion of the total. That's a pretty small portion of the total amounts of assets under management. I think under BlackRock's case, I mean, don't quote me on this, but it might be less than 2 or 3% of their total assets under management. The bigger problem is actually the voting and shareholder advocacy, the proxy voting and shareholder engagement which is with the other 98%, actually the total 100%, even all the people who didn't know they were investing in ESG funds are effectively investing in ESG funds that aren't labeled as ESG funds because they're using their money to advocate for social and political agendas that the clients did not know they were actually subsidizing. And so that's not greenwashing so much as green smuggling is what I call it. And I think that's the far bigger problem, which doesn't lend itself to tracking on underperformance because all funds perform more poorly if they're invested in the same companies that have changed their purpose. And so, you know, when BlackRock or others are pressed on this, they'll say, oh, no, no, you silly anti-ESG activists. We're not divesting from oil and gas. We're the biggest shareholders of companies like Exxon and Chevron. And I say that that's actually sometimes where the anti-ESG crowd sometimes mixes up their priorities a little bit, where actually the real problem, if you had to pick, isn't that these asset managers are divesting from oil and gas. It's they're invested in nominally oil and gas companies who are now changing their purpose to be something else quite altogether. I do want to talk about A Nation of Victims, which is a terrific book. And as you say, kind of looks almost from a sort of a bottom-up view of some of the kind of pathologies that America is dealing with right now. It's a book, again, as you say, about the sort of glorification of the status of victim and the rewards that our society, our society seems to be focused on providing to victims. You say, beginning of the book, America's inner spirit has been domesticated by a new culture that rejects excellence and embraces victimhood, leaving a deep cultural vacuum in its wake. I explain that for us. Well, this is in some ways an intellectual sequel to Woking. Okay, so Woking didn't answer the question of 
why there is a demand for some of this, why businesses may indeed, some of them at least, be acting in the best long-run interests by servicing a general population that hungers for the narratives that are on offer today. And you know, where I left that book off was with this idea that you know what's really going on in our generation is, you know, my generation and younger, millennials and younger, we are so hungry for a cause, hungry for purpose and meaning and identity. At a moment in our national history, when the kinds of things that used to fill that hunger for purpose and meaning and identity, faith, patriotism, national identity, hard work, family, whatever it might be, as those have receded in contemporary importance, that leaves a black hole of a vacuum in its wake. And when you have a vacuum of purpose that runs that deep, that is what allows wokeism or anyism, for that matter, to fill the void. And so this next book was about querying and delving into that black hole of identity and purpose a little bit. You know, I think the conclusion I came to in the first half of the book was that victimhood became the new national identity. How did that come about? How, how did that happen? You say, how did a nation of strivers, of rewards for hard work, of reward for success, extraordinary reward for success, how did it become where we sort of elevate this sort of victim culture to the point where we're actually almost actually discouraging people from believing that they can succeed? Yeah, this anti-excellence, anti-merit culture we have in our country today. So in some ways, it was the predictable consequence of our success. As the old expression goes, hard times create strong men, strong men create easy times, easy times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. There's truth to that adage. It describes a, a lot of the rises and falls of Rome in many cases, too. I think our national success bred a culture of entitlement. Entitlement bred a culture of laziness. And in some ways, victimhood fits laziness like a glove. Because no one wants to be lazy. You, you'd rather not work, not because you don't feel like working. You'd rather claim you're not working because you're in the grand fight against the oppression of capitalism, which is what many in the anti-work movement, and that is a movement in the United States, now say as a justification for why they don't want to return to work, despite the fact that the labor market beckons them to return. And so I think in some ways what I argue in the book is this is in part the predictable consequence of where we are in our national history, where a nation of insurgents eventually succeeds only to become a nation of incumbents. A nation of underdogs effectively becomes this new nation of victims. But it's not enough to make that observation. So, so the question for me is, is that the beginning of our national decline? And I, I do explore parts of the book, even drawing from parts of Roman history and other parts of the history of other empires. Is that the beginning of a national decline? And it might be here, but it might also be an opportunity for rediscovering who we are. And one of the cases I make in the book is that hardship is not the same thing as victimhood. I think we have created a policy response to our victimhood that ensures that hardship indeed we will have. And so the irony is that we see ourselves as a victim, not because we have had so much as victims today in America, not because we have had so much hardship over the last 10 years, but in part because we might not have had enough of it. And I think that the irony is the response including the policy response of this administration and our cultural response will ensure that hardship indeed we will have economically and otherwise. But I hope, I hope that that hardship can actually be an opportunity to rediscover the essence of our national identity, which I would like to see rebuilt around the shared pursuit of excellence, the revival of merit, the unapologetic pursuit of greatness, both at the individual and the national level as the heart of what it means to be American and the American national identity in a way that we've missed over the last 10 years. And, and if that happens, in some ways, it'll just have been part of the inevitable wheels of history turning in the way that you'd exactly predict they turn. Finally, Vivek, how do we do that? Is it a political project? Do we have to elect leaders who once again create the circumstances, the conditions in which we can restore the primacy of these values? Or is it a proselytizing effort? I mean, how do we break out of this culture in which it does seem that victimhood 
is rewarded, you know, the defense that people find ways to be offended, to be victimized. The primacy seems to be all on that. How do we break out of that? Because it is a cultural phenomenon as much as anything. Very much so. So, I mean, that's what the whole book is about. And it takes a view on how we might do this. I run through some uncomfortable terrain. I mean, I think I look at even conservative victimhood culture as a response to the woke victimhood culture. I have concerns that that is actually the way this cultural battle is tending towards ending not with a bang, but with a whimper, where both sides are infected by the same malaise while they continue to fight one another without recognizing that it's actually the same malaise that afflicts both. These are deep-seated challenges. I make the case that the path from victimhood back to excellence runs through some uncomfortable terrain. It runs through the terrain of forgiveness. I think it's a concept we've under-discussed in our modern contemporary culture, on the left and the right equally. So, so you know, I, I think it goes through some uncomfortable places that involve deep introspection for me personally, but I think some hopefully spawn some introspection for our nation as well. I don't think that there's one silver bullet of a solution. It's not our politics. It's not just the market. It's not just education. I think the best we can hope for for a cultural problem this complex is a plethora of partial solutions. And so, you know, I'm working on one in the market, right? I think that there's some ways that's what STRIVE stands for in the marketplace of ideas, but also in the marketplace of financial products to bring a new voice to the table that recalls the unambiguous and unapologetic pursuit of excellence in corporate America. You know, that's part of what strives, you know, aiming to do in its small way in, in the asset management universe and in our capital markets. But I think that people who start a new business or a new enterprise or a new political campaign sometimes fall into the trap of having to view every problem they're solving exclusively through the prism of the solution they're delivering. And I want to be careful not to fall into that trap. I think the best we can hope for is that plethora of partial solutions. And it's going to have to come through education, through our politics, through the market, all of the above. And I think part of the path to that revival runs through hardship. I think there's no avoiding it. I mean, we have a double whammy right now of not only runaway inflation, but having to fight that inflation through raising rates in an environment of also business-unfriendly economic policy, which is different than the Volcker-Reagan combination, which at least had a one-two mitigating punch. Here's a one-two punch in the same direction. So I think we've been skiing on artificial snow, some of which has been printed by the Federal Reserve, some of which has been culturally printed, colloquially using that word in other senses. We've been skiing on artificial snow for 10, 15, 20 years. And now the snow machines stop printing the snow. We're going to have to start to learn how to navigate the real thing instead. And that's going to come with hardship. But I think that if we're able to remind ourselves that sometimes hardship isn't the same thing as victimhood, hardship is what reminds us of who we are as a nation, as individuals. The, the good news, if you will, Jerry, is we, I think we're going to have plenty of hardship in store in the coming couple of years. But I hope that on the other side of that, we will be able to rediscover that essence, that essential question of who we are, both as individuals and as a people. And I hope the thing we discover at the end of it is we can indeed be a nation built on the unapologetic pursuit of excellence again rather than a nation that's currently built on the edifice and the siren song of victimhood. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable thought that uh, that real hardship may actually be necessary to get us to the other side where we understand the flaws of our current society. Vivek Ramaswamy, latest book is Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. Vivek Ramaswamy, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues that are shaping our world. Thank you and goodbye. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.